Hey, it's Martine here. So it probably won't surprise you that I read a lot of stories from The Washington Post, in part because it is actually my job. But it turns out that this year I read 1,141 Washington Post stories. And I know that number because of a new feature that we have called Newsprint. It's a way to basically get your metrics of how you engaged with Washington Post stories over the year. And it tells you things like, who's your top author? What topic did you read about? How much time and how many pages did you read in the Washington Post? What's your reader type? It is fascinating because it gives you insight into yourself and what interested you and what surprised you over the year. So if you want to do your personal one-of-a-kind newsprint, go to WashingtonPost.com newsprint. And... If you wait till the end of the show, I will tell you more about my personal newsprint and what I was reading this year. All right, so that's it for the newsprint. And now here is today's show. In this presidential election cycle, there has been this feeling of deja vu. I think that comes up a lot when I talk to voters (laughs) on the trail. There's a sense of inevitability about the fact that it will likely be a Trump-Biden rematch again. Dylan Wells is a campaign reporter for The Post. And for the last several months, she has been closely following the Republican primary, along with my colleagues Ashley Parker. I'm senior national political correspondent. And Isaac Arnstorf. I'm Isaac Arnstorf. I mainly cover Trump. In the national polls, Trump is dozens of points ahead of every other Republican candidate for president. And though he is not an incumbent, he's basically running his campaign like he is. Well, I didn't cover the previous Trump campaigns, but uh, I know people who did are giving me a hard time about how little I'm traveling by comparison (laughs) Um, because of Trump as the candidate is kind of not doing that much because he doesn't have to. Only a handful of other candidates are still running. And in recent weeks, former Governor Nikki Haley of South Carolina has been gaining ground. Normally, when you cover a campaign, there's always a front runner, of course, right? But you kind of understand anything can happen. But especially on the Republican side, there is this sense of everyone is competing for a distant second place and sort of for what? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers, and it's Tuesday, December 12th. Today, I am sitting down with Dylan, Ashley, and Isaac to talk about the Republican campaigns for president. We will debrief about how Trump's legal battles are shaping the race. And we'll dig into what the contest for second place says about the state of the Republican Party. I want to come back later to the likely Republican nominee, Trump, um, and first talk about this race for the distant second place. I've been hearing a lot about the ascendance of Nikki Haley, um, that she might be at least the candidate who will have that second place position. Talk about why that happened and how that happened. Like, where? how did Nikki Haley get from being the person that it seemed like no Republican actually liked to someone who seemed like she has at least a little bit more of a shot? Yeah, I've been covering the Haley campaign since she launched in February. She was the first one in the field. And you're right. Everyone thought DeSantis was the most viable Trump alternative in the field. But Haley has gained momentum over the summer, aided largely by her strong performance in the first couple debates we saw, which 
caused a lot of voters to give her another look. And what were those moments in the debates that really caught people's attention? She had a lot of strong one-liners while the men on the stage near her were just squabbling with each other. Hold on, hold on. Governor Haley, would you like to respond? Are you bought and paid for? What I would like to say is the fact that I think this is exactly why Margaret Thatcher said, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. She's been a strong debater throughout her career when she was running for the state house, when she was running for governor in South Carolina. She is very skilled in that area, and her team knew that those debates were going to be huge moments for her over the summer. And they were able to build off them. And she definitely got more voters then coming out to her events that I've been at in the early states. And she's recently landed some key endorsements. Americans for a Prosperity, the Coke Network just got behind her. She's recently had some big-name Democrats donating to her campaign, which is a bit unusual for a Republican primary and has caused uh, her rivals to attack her for taking those donations. She has been picking up momentum, but as we've all said, it is a momentum in the race for second place. And while in a lot of these early state polls, she's now even with DeSantis in Iowa and far ahead of him in New Hampshire and South Carolina, she's still far behind Trump. In her ascendancy also, it's worth noting, was made possible by DeSantis being wildly uncharismatic and socially awkward. <laughs> <laughs> like you can't discount that sort of backdrop against which she's rising. That in some ways this is actually DeSantis's failure to maintain what seemed like his yes. place as at least like a, a right. tough challenger to Trump. Yeah, I mean, Haley has a small team. They never leak. They're very consistent in their planning. It's all been about when they're going to peak coming and having this moment at the right time, not in the spring, but in the fall heading into Iowa. Well, conversely, DeSantis has outsourced a lot of his campaign to a super PAC that has seen turnover over turnover, rounds of layoffs over the summer. And, you know, that's obviously not exactly where you want to be in this presidential race. So, I'd say Ashley is right. It's not only the rise of Haley, but it's the demise of DeSantis. So you mentioned that Haley has gotten these key endorsements, um, including the Koch Network. What does that mean? Like, how does that change things going forward for her? Well, one of the concerns that people have voiced about Haley's candidacy is if she has the staff support and the ground game in the early states to be able to build off of her momentum. Like I said, she has a much smaller team. She doesn't have a super PAC that's doing as much on the ground as, say, never back down for Ron DeSantis. Um, And so there's a lot of hope that AFP and that Coke endorsement, which is known for its grassroots network, can help organize for her, especially in Iowa, and help make those direct contacts with voters. You've got to caveat that there's been a few instances, not a lot, but a a little bit of evidence of pushback within the staff. People who were hoping for a DeSantis endorsement were really upset by Mm -hmm. the Haley endorsement because she is not aligned with the Koch Network's position on a non-interventionist foreign policy, whereas Haley is much more forward-leaning in foreign policy. And then the other thing you have to point out is that the Koch network is not what it once was. It took a lot of time stepping back from politics. Can you explain a little bit what it once was? 
it once was this massive organization of a bunch of different groups, some top political talent, not just the money from Charles Koch himself, but a whole network of donors that he led. And when Trump won in 16 over their opposition, they kind of took a step back from politics for a while. A lot of that talent left, and there was sort of an atrophy of those muscles. So for them to come back in now, it's really not clear that they can still, they still have as much weight to throw around. Ashley, you mentioned the reported awkwardness of Ron DeSantis. Um, You know, I've seen him give a few speeches and I've seen clips of him online. But as someone who has a better sense of what he's like out in the world, can you explain a little bit more what you're alluding to here? And that this is not like your personal hot take. This is No, no, this is very much not my my personal (laughs) hot take. Some of this is more I have more heard from donors and operatives and people who have seen him privately one on one. You know, I've, I've heard stories of someone comes in to talk to him. And he just keeps in his AirPods, which we all love our AirPods, right? But, like, we would take them out for a conversation with an ally or a friend or a human. Um, I can say in Iowa and New Hampshire, voters there, like, expect a candidate to truly get to know them. A lot of them see candidates multiple times. They have conversations. They're used to candidates calling their mom or asking about their children, who they mm. mentioned once at a town hall months before. Which and, is, like, wilds on its own, right? Yes. The fact that, like, <laughs> Iowa, this state, you know, where it's, like, people, like, everyone has met everyone who's run yeah, for president. There's a know? lot of voter privilege there because <laughs> they're the first few states that get the attention. And, and, very, and br- they, wait, very briefly, just on Iowa and, and New Hampshire a little bit, it's, like, they are so trained because the national media descends on them every four years that, like, you ask them a question, they're like, all right, is this deep background? Is this background <laughs> with, quote, attribution? Like, they they just know. Very they they get it. Yes, and so they have expectations from these candidates. And I've been at, you know, several DeSantis events in the early states, and someone will come up and ask a question and be like, I'm a veteran. Like, let me tell you, because he's also a veteran. Let's have this bonding moment about our shared experience. And DeSantis at times will kind of just be like, good deal, and like pat them on the back and move on. And Mm. some of those voters make note of it. They tell us in conversations when we ask them how they feel about DeSantis, they're like, well, he looks a little awkward. Like they're playing pundit a bit, but they also have these expectations of the candidates that um, he has at times not met their their standard of the personal connection that they hope to have. Interesting. Like, they want to be wooed, and they're like, this guy is not wooing us. Yeah, they might really like his policies, but they don't see him as someone they necessarily could really bond with and hang out with. And that's one area in which Haley has won people over. They view her as warm and someone who cares about them when they have a one-on-one conversation. So you talked about debate performance being a big part of how the fact that Nikki Haley is seen as on the rise. When we think about the debate that happened last week, did that carry through? Or what were the moments in in that debate that kind of gave a sense of where things are at right now? Isaac and I were in Alabama and Tuscaloosa for the debate, and Haley really got the front-runner treatment more so than in the past debates. She faced an onslaught of attacks from DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy. Nikki, I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem. And I think that that's what people need to know. Nikki is corrupt. This is a woman who will send your kids to die so she can buy a bigger house. This is the problem, using identity politics. She never got ruffled at all. I mean, at one point, she responded to Ramaswamy by just saying, No, it's not worth my time to respond to him. I'd say like the prior few debates, Haley is pretty good at just brushing aside those attacks. She had a memorable line where she was like, I love all the attention, fellas. Thank you for that. (laughs) 
and really framed their attacks as them just being jealous of where she is in the polls. And in terms of these donors that are supporting me, they're just jealous. They wish that they were supporting them, but I'm not going to sit there and do that. Nikki Haley is very much a traditional conservative in the mold of Mm pre-2016, pre-Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis, in his imperfect way, is trying to lead a Republican Party that has been overtaken by a MAGA ideology. And his pitch has basically been, I'm everything you liked about Donald Trump without the crazy. And so it will be interesting. And again, they're not quite perfect people because they have different flaws, but it's also sort of a philosophical debate for second between the two of them, right? Do you want what the party once was or has MAGA really taken over? Like, is MAGA just loyal to Trump or is that where Republicans in mass want to head? And have your conversations with voters, like, given you any indication of the answer to that question? Because it does seem surprising to me that it's like, if you have this model of, okay, Ron DeSantis is Trump without the crazy, then why isn't Ron DeSantis doing better? And how is it that Nikki Haley seems to be resonating a little bit more with voters, even though she is very much It seems like the kind of like never Trump palatable candidate or um, I don't know. Nikki Haley feels like she's (laughs) sort of in the model of like a a Jeb Bush candidate. Yeah, or Marco Rubio when he ran. So, yeah, what are are voters saying? People like the crazy. (laughs) They want the attitude. They want the mean tweets. They they want the charisma. They, They want the star power. They really respond to that. And, you know, the Haley Super PAC has an ad out today, which is attacking DeSantis for being a lame imitation of Trump. Ron DeSantis, too lame to lead, too weak to win. Which presumably they're hoping is going to bring DeSantis supporters over to her. But you could just as easily watch that and see it driving DeSantis supporters to Trump because why take new Coke when you've got old Coke? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a challenge for Haley. When I go to her events, I talk to a lot of especially women, independents, moderates who say that they were Republicans, they considered themselves strong conservatives until Trump's election. And then they broke with the party and now they're not so sure where they fit in. So she's definitely made inroads with that archetype of voter. But as we've all mentioned, in order to win this primary, she's going to have to peel off some of those Trump voters. And she's been very careful about only criticizing him in certain ways. She's highlighted her experience as U.N. ambassador, which was obviously under Trump, where she worked with him. So she's been kind of trying to walk the line to not anger any of those Trump voters for going too hard after him. But she also hasn't made that many inroads on actually peeling them off. And she's the sort of candidate who would be or could be quite formidable against Biden in a general election for some of those, as Dylan was saying, disaffected Trump voters, Republican suburban women, independents, even Democrats who think Biden is too old or Mm -hmm. are disappointed with him on his handling of the Israel-Gaza war. But to get there, she has to make it through the gauntlet of a basically MAGA-controlled Republican primary. Yeah. Well, I feel like that is the real question that I have right now. Is there any realistic path for Haley or really any of these candidates who aren't Trump to get through the primaries and to actually be the candidate? So that's part of the logic of the AFP endorsement, is that if you can sell her on electability because she performs better against Biden, and then she can consolidate all the non-Trump support as the one alternative to Trump who can win. The problem is, like we were just talking about with DeSantis, and this is the case that DeSantis people will make in private, is 
If you poll DeSantis supporters on their second choice, they're not going to Haley if DeSantis drops out. They're going to Trump, or at least a lot of them are. Hmm. So the idea that even if you could consolidate the non-Trump Republican electorate around someone besides Trump, it might not be a majority. Haley and her allies argue that their path is different than DeSantis in that DeSantis is really all in on Iowa, that first nominating state. And that's where his PAC and his campaign are putting all of their efforts. He just completed the full Grassley, went to all 99 counties in the state. Haley has pulled even with him in Iowa, but she hasn't been spending as much time there or as much effort. What she has done is surpassed him significantly in New Hampshire and then in South Carolina. That's her home state. Their pitch is really she just needs a a good enough finish in Iowa, but it's not make or break it in the way that it is for DeSantis. And then in New Hampshire, if she has a strong second against Trump, she hopes and believes that the rest of the field will consolidate, setting her up for a one-on-one against Trump in her home state. And that's kind of the map that they're hoping will aid their campaign. And, mm-hmm. and the two challenges to that are that can help her beat out DeSantis for this race for second place, <laughs> this very coveted second place that still doesn't get you the nomination. Um, <laughs> but in talking to people in South Carolina, one challenge is she even in a one-to-one on Trump, she might not win South Carolina. And as Jeb Bush yeah. and Marco Rubio know, it is devastating to lose your home state by a lot to Donald Trump. That's the first thing. The second thing is Democrats privately will say, look, Anyone other than Trump is far more formidable against Biden in a general election. But as long as Trump is still in the mix, so if Trump is somehow not the Republican nominee, but he still exists, right, they still think there's a world in which they could, for instance, beat a Haley or beat a DeSantis because they know that Donald Trump is not going to be a party leader who gets behind the Republican nominee. He's going to be there swiping at how Haley stole the election from him or how DeSantis stole the election from him. So if there's a Republican nominee who is not Trump while Trump is still in the picture, they're going to be having to take incoming from Trump and from Biden. And they think that would weaken them. But if you could wave a wand and make Trump disappear, then Democrats are very worried about a Haley. After the break, my conversation with Ashley, Isaac, and Dylan continues as we talk about Trump's dictator jokes and his plans for a shock and awe return to the White House. We'll be right back. So, yeah, let's talk about that question of how Trump is going to be in the picture. Obviously, there are multiple trials going on in which Trump is defending himself. They are playing out on different timelines. Um, But how are we seeing that affect the campaign so far? And what happens if Trump gets convicted before November? I mean, then does that second place question start to matter more? Isaac? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got names and numbers of voters in my notebook who say that they're supporting Trump, but they won't if he gets convicted. So I can call them back (laughs) and see what they say if that happens. Mm -hmm. Very smart, by the way. (laughs) If he's convicted before the convention, there will be some pressure to make a move at the convention. It probably won't go anywhere. I think we have to talk about the campaign that Trump is running, making so much of it about these prosecutions and portraying himself as a victim and taking the fact that he's been indicted for trying to overturn the election and for mishandling classified documents as license if he does win back the White House 
to turn federal power against people who he views as his critics and political opponents. And he's been quite explicit about that. We've also reported that in private, he is naming those making that enemies list. He has allies and advisors who are talking about a kind of shock and awe return to power that we didn't see in the first term of really hitting the ground running in a way that they weren't prepared to do before with things like invoking the Insurrection Act on day one, which would empower Trump to deploy the military against civil demonstrations. And when he was asked about this straight up by Sean Hannity in a Fox News town hall last week. Under no circumstances, you are promising America tonight you would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. He didn't rule it out. He, like, made kind of like a coy nudge-wink, like, oh, well, you know, I'll only be a dictator on day one. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. Has there been any fallout from that comment? Or, I mean, I guess among the people who support him, like, that is a funny line and and a line that you cheer for. Well, Isaac and some of our colleagues had a a great story sort of getting at this, which is that Donald Trump himself, yes, that galvanizes the base. And every time he is attacked, his true hardcore supporters feel as if they are being attacked. And it only reinforces how much they believe he's fighting for them. But beyond that, there are these people, again, who you need to vote for you to win a general election because the last election was decided, what, roughly by like 45,000 votes across three states. People expect it will be like that this time, but potentially even closer. Mm -hmm. Um, And those sorts of voters don't like the dictator rhetoric. And Trump's campaign, the professionals around him, understand that. But Trump himself loves that idea. So he is doing nothing to tamp it down, right? He's like, oh, yeah, day one, dictator, you know, kind of a joke. While his campaign is like, this is not that helpful, sir. (laughs) Yeah. What are some of the other questions that you guys have going forward as this campaign continues to roll out? I mean, look, we're going into the holidays, and then it's basically Iowa. It's the final two-week stretch before the Iowa caucus. And I think that we'll have so much more of a sense of who truly is winning the battle for second place after January 15th when we have the first time that voters or caucus goers are actually weighing in on this race. And I think for Haley specifically, there's still a lot of questions about how she's able to mobilize this support and, you know, how much does it even matter if it is the battle for second place? Like, this field could be easily consolidated and just be Trump very soon. Um, And I think we're kind of waiting to see what that timeline looks like. And I mean, I sort of have two questions. One is, again, getting back to like this race for a second. Like, I've covered presidential campaigns going back to 2008, and they are so gruel. I mean, they are exhilarating and they're fun to cover. But if you are the candidate, they are so grueling and so exhausting. And, you know, every it's as David Axelrod said, it's an MRI of your soul. And I look at Mm -hmm. these things of, you know, DeSantis just hitting the 99th county in Iowa. And I just kind of want to know, like, how do you get out of bed and make yourself do this every morning when you are competing to get like, 17% of the vote compared (laughs) to whatever, you know, double that Trump has. So I'd, I'd like be curious to hear their true answer to that. And then I'm also curious about the vitriol that we hear from voters, Republican voters, a lot of them, about Joe Biden. I intuitively understand 
not wanting to vote for Joe Biden. There's a lot of reasons. But sort of like the anger at him, as someone kind of put it in one of our meetings, you can disagree with his policies. You can think he's too old. You can think it's time for a new generation. You can philosophically uh, prefer a smaller government approach, all those things. But, you know, he's fundamentally sort of like a grandpa who likes ice cream. And the (laughs) level of hatred that he has elicited among the Republican base, I just kind of want to dig in on that and understand what is it? Is it a particular policy? Is it a particular— What do you think it is? I mean, what is your guess? I don't don't know. That's what I I plan to find out. (laughs) But significantly, it wasn't there in 2020. Like, that was something that the Trump campaign really struggled with was making people hate Biden. Yeah, but they have since succeeded. succeeded. And, you know, you see— the F. Joe Biden lawn signs in places where people are very nice, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, in Iowa. And we just had a good story. Another one of our colleagues did a story about Trump rallies, little kids, like elementary school age kids wearing F. Joe Biden T-shirts. And I, again, I want to understand, is that coming from Trump? Has the Trump campaign finally been successful? What exactly, you know, was it that Joe Biden did? When you get the answer, I look forward to having this conversation so you <laughs> yeah, can bring explain me, it bring to me. Yeah, bring me back on. <laughs> we will. We will. Um, Isaac, what about you? What are your questions going forward? So looking forward to Iowa, there's an expectations game going on with Trump out there saying that he's up by 60 or 70 or 80 percent. And if it ends up being closer than that, there is a way that the runners-up could lose well, that if it's a lot closer, if he's under an outright 50 percent, then it helps them, particularly if it's Haley going into New Hampshire where she's doing better, helps them make the case to consolidate as the alternative. There's an old saying, campaigns don't end, they run out of money. And so if one candidate can emerge as looking like a real formidable challenge to Trump, they're going to have a blank check to try to carry that through as long as they can. Dylan, Ashley, Isaac, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Dylan Wells is a campaign reporter for The Post. Isaac Arnstorf is a national political reporter. And Ashley Parker is a senior national political correspondent. That is it for today's Post Reports. Thank you so much for listening. Today's show was produced and mixed by Ted Muldoon, and it was edited by Rena Flores. And as promised, I am back to reveal the juicy details of my own Washington Post newsprint for 2023. So in addition to my 1,141 stories read, which seems like a lot of stories, I read stories by 468 Washington Post reporters, among them Ben Terrace, my colleague, who is a features reporter covering national politics for the style section. Apparently, I am in the top 10% of Ben Terrace readers. And the two top stories that I read this year were both advice columns from Carolyn Hacks, both of which were about people complaining about their in-laws. And I don't even officially have in-laws yet. So I don't know why I'm so interested in people complaining about their in-laws, but I find that very fascinating. Anyways, that was my Washington Post newsprint, and you should do it too. It's very easy. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash newsprint. With that, I'm Martine Powers, and we'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. 